0: This is probably one of the biggest sticking points for founders today. It's how do I find the best talent and how do I incentivize them?
1: I think uh, assumption is the mother of all mess ups sometimes. You just have to Mm. be very clear when you're looking at uh, what a company's got in place, um, what they mean by those various definitions.
0: Well, we're going to get into those.
2: You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast.
0: Welcome guys to Legal Hour with Tom and Carlos. Today we have a special guest, partner at Oric, Ian Shaw. Ian is a specialist uh, in employee schemes for share grants, and his specific title is Partner and Head of Employee Share Schemes and Incentives at Oric. So with that, welcome Ian.
1: Thanks so much, delighted to be here. Now
0: the reason why I wanted to, to have you on Ian and, and Have Tom also commenting on this particular topic today? Is because this is probably one of the biggest sticking points for founders today. It's how do I find the best talent and how do I incentivize them? And of course, we all know about you know typical pay and how much somebody should get paid, and that's already hard enough. I mean, there's it's already hard enough finding what to pay somebody in what country and how much. But where it gets really tricky is when you have to give them something of your company. And I say something because. In this particular episode, we're going to go through what that something could be, because there's like 500 different things you could give them. And that's the confusing bit. So one of the ways that I wanted to um, to kick this off a little bit is by uh, going through definitions, because definitions probably anchor it for the rest of us. So let's kick off with a definition that we hear a lot uh, with an ESOP. What is an ESOP,
1: So, well, as you know, lawyers love definitions, Um, An ESOP is an employee share ownership plan, essentially, or an employee share option plan. One of the problems in my area is that people use definitions both loosely and interchangeably. Um, But that broadly means you've got a plan under which you give employees rights to shares, or sometimes not even rights to shares, sometimes rights to cash calculated by reference to the value of shares. So it's always definitely worth asking. Because sometimes it can mean actual share ownership, sometimes it can mean options, sometimes it can mean something completely different, like awards which simply vest, like RSU. So it's always worth just drilling down and not making assumptions and actually having a look at what's there in substance or or get your lawyer to have a look at it. But at the highest level, it basically means a set of rules under which you give your employees and sometimes non-employees rights to part of your company.
0: Yeah, and what what other names have you heard it by? Like, what I mean, obviously, there's option plans. So yeah,
1: what, what Americans call it. So you see share incentive plans, which is also confusing because that can also mean a particular sort of UK tax advantage plan. Um, you see company share option plan, which again is confusing because that can also mean a particular sort of UK tax favoured option plan. Um, You see equity scheme. You see, um, and interestingly enough, in the the US, you tend to find them called plans because there's a bit of a perception that scheme is associated with tax dodging. Um, You can see all sorts. um, And sometimes you will ask for a set of plan rules. There won't be any. And they'll say, this is our scheme. And actually, it's just a load of random standalone award grants. Um, you'll see people say, we've got a 2017 scheme, a 2018 scheme, a 2019 scheme. Actually, sometimes it's all the same scheme. It's just grants that they made in different years. So I think uh, assumption is the mother of all mess-ups sometimes. and You just have to Mm -hmm. be very clear when you're looking at uh, what a company's got in place, um, what they mean by those various definitions.
0: Well, we're gonna get into those, and we're gonna cover some of the points that you mentioned earlier, like uh, RSUs and some of the other structures that are out there. Because yeah, it is confusing, and and it's a lot to cover. But let's let's take a little bit of a of a, um, a chronological view of a company's development. And and Tom, maybe you can walk us through a, a little bit of um, when a founder starts a company. What is the distinction between founder shares and that first grant that is given to somebody who is not a founder, what is that distinction? What is the what is the definition between having an option to buy a share versus to have a founder share? Because we're going to start getting into after that into everything having to do with vesting and how even though both may have vesting, how they're very different. Hmm.
2: Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, I think that you know when you when you go through that kind of chronology of starting a company to then as, as founders, one of the first things which you're thinking about is how are you going to, I think we've maybe covered this in a previous episode, how are you going to like split that equity as founders amongst each other? So say if there's, you know, two people as, as the founding team, as the as the co-founders, it's often 50-50. If it's free, there's often like, you know, a third, a third, a third. Uh, I mean, there are different ways of splitting that. I think generally pretty even um, equity allocations seems to work pretty well, but you've got, that set up and then perhaps the next stage of a, of a business is and you know that might be even before the business and you know we've got things like the, the on seedsummit.org um, the founder collaboration agreement's a great piece of paper which can um, help set up that very very early stage stuff then you get to the stage where maybe it's around the same time you're raising money maybe it's not but you start to bring on some people some employees to to work alongside you as founders um and often that's you know obviously there'll be probably some salary paid you know generally speaking that someone wants to get paid for for the work they're doing but also the tool which is really useful is you know what we're talking about here is giving these employees some kind of like stake in the business um and rather than i think giving them shares which we can probably go into why the same kind of founder shares that the founders have is, is problematic from tax reasons governance reasons all sorts of reasons um and we can probably cover that more as we go through this episode. But the, the, the structure which works is often to give them um, options and, you know, what we talk about here. And so the cap table will then, you know, the cap table of the company might look like you have the majority held in the hands of the founders. But this element of the cap table, like carved out, is often called it as an option pool. And then within that option pool, um, and we can come on to the sizes of those option pools and, and what those grants look like. It, that, there will be like a contractual right for the these employees to get access to to um to for the this contract to turn into shares and that's a kind of simpler way of and a more a kind of appropriate way for getting these employees these are crucial early people for the business like in equity incentivized in in the, in the company rather than giving them kind of like founder shares so that's usually the time when those start to come up and as i said often it's when these first employees are coming on in, in, yeah. in short,
1: yeah, it's just worth pointing out as well when you said um, about about salary, there are minimum wage requirements. Um, I'm not an employment lawyer, so I'm not entirely sure what those are, but th- there's a definite um, amount per hour that you have to give people, so you can't just say to an employee, for instance, um, we'll give you an option instead. Um, but um, so you're absolutely right you'll be you'll be paying salaries then and that's a cash cost and sort of stepping back more widely of course if you're a startup you, you can't pay these people half a million pounds like you could pay the top software engineer at google or amazon because of course you don't have the cash so your your equity is really your most powerful tool to enable you to cop to, to um, compete in a, against uh, more established companies and I guess what you're saying to people is yes you you can make this amount of salary every year if you go and work for one of the big players but nobody ever became a multimillionaire through salary and um, you the, the, your um, your package is based on, on on the growth and value of this company yes it may not go anywhere but if you don't think it is then perhaps you shouldn't be working for us. So you buy in and you're aligned as well with, with, with the founders. Everybody's everyone's in the same boat and it, it's about keeping the employees happy is about finding that right balance to say uh, that I'm as I'm playing this role and I'm being rewarded adequ- adequately for it.
0: Yeah. So one of the ideas that I wanted to lay the foundation for the sub, the, the rest of the the conversation is this distinction and correct me if I'm wrong, Tom here, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to abstract out what you said because just like in other in other episodes where we've talked about the idea of equity and then something like convertible as a potential future event for equity but equity being the sort of like the foundation I want to do the same for this particular episode which is equity in 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 the case of ownership of the company is the sort of the, the real tangible thing that has economic value and anything having to do with a a scheme or a plan is to abstract out that value and separate it from the things that are typically tied with that value, unfortunately, enmeshed with that value, including governance, including some of these things. And so the purpose of coming up with these schemes and plans is to provide economic value to an an employee, but not fall victim of all these other enmeshed entities that come with having equity in hand. Would you say that that's a high-level description?
2: So it's so it's a very good high-level description, Carlos. I'd say the only probably thing, and I'm sure Ian's much more experienced at describing this, is the ta- the tax benefits as well. Yeah, I put that as the the, the third thing. It's probably yeah. There's a
0: tax benefit, yeah.
2: The, the governance thing for sure. I think it's cleaner. Well, I was so going to ask you that
0: as next. I was going to say, Tom, actually, could you walk through the reason why it's enmeshed? Like, why not just give equity? Why not just keep it simple? Like, uh, maybe you can just. For the removal yeah, so, of doubt, like what are the elements that you just, imp- from a practical point of view, just make it impractical for a, a fast-growing company to give employees just outright equity? Here you go.
2: Well, so I think that the there's you know there's a few there's a few points. Probably one is this idea that um, it kind of can can muddy the waters a little bit when it comes to governance. So if they have shares, they have shareholders, they have various rights and, and ability to vote and ability to kind of like. Um, be involved in, in some level of the company, which maybe isn't appropriate for an employee. Um, I think that the the, the the tax element as well, I think is is important. And, and we can come on to that at some point, because that's, you know, dealing with, it can be highly tax inefficient for them to actually be granted shares, because they might have a, like a, a, you know, a, a dry tax charge at, at, at some point. Also, I'd say that kind of administratively, it can be really challenging. So as the company goes through a funding journey, for instance, um, and at the time of the of the funding round, they're issuing shares to investors. The investors at that point are also approving the um an, an option plan. And that's this kind of idea that a proportion of the cap table is carved out, ready to be granted and at the discretion of the of the company and the founders. So it's already kind of like it's like pre-approved, almost you think of it. Um if that if that wasn't used and they wanted to start issuing shares which I don't think a company would ever do this, but just hypothetically saying, then that would have to go through, you know, a probably similar, quite onerous process of, you know, it might get caught by, I don't know, preemption rights where other investors can put, you know, or rights of first refusal or whatever it is. There's there's various, various things that once you get into the actual kind of like shares of the company, rather than this, as you described it, Carlos, like kind of, one level removed or even, I mean, it's probably entirely the wrong word, but like a derivative of a share in terms of like the option contract back um, to it, then it's it's a cleaner and more um, appropriate and simpler and tax efficient way yeah. to, to make so it the reason.
0: The reason I wanted you to enumerate those, Tom, did, did, did he miss any, Ian? Yeah, the,
2: just, to say, so just,
1: to, just to add into that, um, it, it's, as you say, it's a, it's a tax issue if the shares have got value and that if you're giving somebody a share for, for nothing, then they'll pay tax on that, um, as you might expect. Otherwise, nobody would pay people salaries. So they'd just give people shares and everyone would pay capital gains tax. Um, it's also easier when you come to levers. Because if you're trying to get a share back from somebody and they're refusing to communicate with you, if they're a bad lever, um, if they've just walked out the door, um, or Brat's been um, sacked for gross misconduct or something, and you've no connection with them anymore. Um, They're refusing to sign a stock transfer form to to transfer their share back to the company. Um, Then you're having to operate a procedure, which hopefully you've got in your articles, which would operate this sort of power attorney, which basically says you can sign on their behalf query that works it should do depending on how your articles are drafted but that's less easy and more messing about than it is to just say well under the rules of this option plan your option lapses that's it your right to the share has been extinguished It's worth pointing out, though, of course, as you'll know from when you've dealt with um, companies in the States, um, that the Silicon Valley approach is that options are exercisable throughout their life. So when they vest,
0: you can exercise them. Hold that that thought, Ian. I'm going to get to that in a second. I'm (laughs) going to get to that in a second. Hold that thought. So the, the, the point you brought up, though, is a very good one, the, the levers one, and I've added that to the list that Tom did. And the reason why I asked you that question, Tom and Ian, thanks for that contribution is because I suspect as we get to the section around structures, that they're all different attempts, those structures, to create different forms of dealing with those issues, with the votes and rights or the tax elements or the, the approvals and, and, and administration of the schemes. And then, of course, how to deal with levers. So when we get to the section around phantom slash ghost shares and we get to the section around RSUs and some of these, what makes these different structures interesting is in how they deal with these issues, right? And so, yeah. um, I, it's, it's great to get your, get those out there. But before we get there, let's continue down this path of, of trying to define and, and help somebody think through the process of creating a scheme in the first place. So let's start now with quantities um one of the things that I think most founders struggle with is uh, understanding why investors just pick some number like you know what is that number? why is there a number there like what what is the traditional number range and, and maybe Tom you can you can kick us off and you can comment on it but basically, what is the quantity a founder should reserve at what stage and and give in, in terms of the overall not individual roles just yet, but just overall.
2: Yeah, no. It's. Um, I think that you know, in terms of like the exact exact numbers, they're always going to be a little bit ranges and a little bit kind of subjective depending on the type of business. I think you know, there's definitely been in the market probably quite a uh, a movement towards at least the kind of pre-seed to seed, probably Series A kind of stage. That there is at each of those stages, at least probably around about ten percent of the option of an option pool kind of carved out. And I say at each of those stages, because that might actually require a you know some kind of like an, an increase at different points because some of the options have been granted and they want to have more unallocated available. But the 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 broad kind of like broad strokes, and actually there's been some really good um work done by this by our friends at Index Ventures recently who released um something so you know check it out on, on their site. And obviously we can we we can link to this in, in the show notes, but um the the idea that is I think, as a broad statement, and Europe is probably still underweight in what how they think about options and how they think about as as founders how European founders think about the the impact that some of these share options can have. And so there has always been because it's you know it's it's impactful for founders because it reduces their equity having a bigger option pool, and it's something that investors want because if you come in at the time and you have a carved out um, option pool then you're not going to get diluted by this amount kind of like going forward because usually it comes in pre the round. It's like a, a technicality there. But more than that, I think the best founders and the best companies that we've seen recently, they are more generous with thinking about option pools. They are kind of like more like, okay, if this option pool being a little bit larger, being 10 12% or, or whatever that number might be, gives me a little bit more firepower to go into the market and make those really really fantastic you know company defining and changing and improving hires then then that's totally worth doing because the you know the, the the journey of a startup is quite binary and i think that if you can stack the kind of you know cards in your favor a little bit more by bringing in one or two you know fantastic people then that gives you an even better chance to be one of those you know binary positive outcomes rather than the other ones which you know don't don't make don't make the grade. so i think in, in to cut a long story short i think that we're we're proponents of, of large option pools and it's not necessarily not astronomically large i think if it goes above you know 12 15 plus then you're looking at option pools which are probably on the large side because there's some key you know almost like founder level higher missing from the team but those which are more in the like you know 10 percent or or a little bit above range, I think are fantastic because they give the companies really significant firepower to go to the market and make great hires. Um, And I think that's what we're seeing in the market.
1: Yeah, again, it's interesting to compare the UK and the US though, isn't it? You've got UK who, as you say, are sort of 10 12% and then every round you do, um, because investors are coming in and buying shares and you're issuing them more shares, um, then your option pool gets what's called diluted. Um, you increase the option pool back up to the 10% or the 12%. And I, what I tend to see in the UK and in Europe is that if you set it at 10% at, uh, say, your Series A, then every time investors come in, you issue more shares to them, you top that option pool back up to 10%, so it stays at 10%. Um, throughout your rounds. Whereas in the US, um, I've often seen the option pool actually increase in real terms. So you get to Series C, say, and it increases from 10% to 15%. You get to Series E, it's up to 20%. Um, So you get that actual, not just topping it back up, so it stays always at 10%, but the the actual increase in real terms.
0: So a quick question, Ian. Uh, A founder might be listening to this and being like, oh, that's great, you know, I totally get it. Um I totally get why I need it. I totally get why I need to give it to somebody. But what happens to the amount that is not given out? The company sold tomorrow, who gets that? Does that get div- divided between all the shareholders proportionally or does that go back to the founders who gave it up in the first place? What what's standard there? That's a really interesting question. I mean of- often
3: you 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 just see that people exercise their options, they get shares. And then if that hasn't been used, that's just an authorization, if you like, to issue those options. If those options haven't been issued, those option holders have exercised at the time of the exit and they've received their share of the proceeds along with all the other shareholders. But I have seen in some shareholders' agreements um, a provision which says that exactly the situation you describe, if the option pool hasn't been fully divided out, so the investors have said, this is the slice of cake that you can divvy around your employees and you've only divvied up half the cake, then that remaining unallocated cake must either be allocated um, at the discretion of, say, the CEO or the remuneration committee if they've got one of those, um, or sometimes it must be automatically divided up pro rata. So then you see options sort of immediately issued or, or shares issued and then people participate as shareholders But it depends what you've got in your investment agreement. It's well worth checking that. It'd be interesting to see what you you two see in the market there.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think think on our our side we definitely see. It's almost like when you see the cap tables and you see the kind of issued um, share percentage and then the fully diluted. And I think we always like uh, drill into um, our our team and, and also you know founders. You know, it's always about the fully diluted. You want to see everything kind of blown out. You want to know the the percentage, which, and you just work towards that. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting point you make around. And actually, I was just looking at cap table the other day and thinking, you know, there is still quite a lot of option pool there left. There, the company's quite late stage, and it. You, you, I think it's still the smartest thing is to look at that fully diluted percentage because yeah. it's in likelihood that is probably what the the you know the ownership, of the company actually is for for a shareholder, for a founder, for whoever. But as you said, there are these circumstances where maybe some of that option pool doesn't get used up and it's only going to potentially increase. You're never going to be less than that fully diluted. So yeah. I think that's, and, 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 and I think that in terms of like those, when they come to those exit events, I think it, it feels like generally those option pools are pretty much used up. Um, And then when they're not, I think it's, it's, it is kind of like case by case. I don't know if we're seeing an exact route of whether those shares are deferred or whether they're Granted, or whether they're you know prorated off, I think that it seems to be um, something that is 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 a bit of a case by case.
0: Yeah, and, and look, it, it's not only a case by case, but it's also a philosophy. Like I think you'll find that different investors who back different founders um, will will ask for shares, option pool shares, and, and to be distributed prorata versus given to the founding team, and and it depends on the amounts, and you know we see all sorts of different circumstances happen, and I'll give one. Um, which will be the sort of the segue for the next question, which is it's not un, it's not unforeseeable that especially in early early stage companies that one of the founders leaves, and when the founder leaves, um, you know there's the question of well what do you do with these founder shares and and in many cases in the UK they they just get deferred which you know is different than the way that they're dealt with in the US and you can comment on that Tom or, or Ian when when you guys uh, answer but. Once that vacuum is left, it's not only a vacuum in terms of shares, but it's also a vacuum in terms of capacity, right? So, like if you if your CTO left and you're, as a co-founder, you now need to bring in a new person who's going to take that role, and that person is going to have to have some some chunky amount, and and you might need to have if that person was not a founder in this case, maybe it was a, an employee and they had options. You're going to need those options to go back into the option pool. You don't want them to go out to the, to the broader community. You don't want them to, to be distributed pro rata or, or to the everyone in the, in the shareholder base. You want them to be within the founding team or the core employee team or core ESOP team because it needs to be granted to the new employee. So I, I wanted to maybe with that anecdote, uh, hand it over to you, Tom, and just walk us through a little bit about how to think through granting quantities to individuals and in what circumstances do you grant larger chunks versus the more traditional smaller chunks?
2: Yeah. No, I think in terms of the the size of grants, I mean, generally speaking, and this is broad brush again, and I think we can point towards some more probably specific data in, in the notes, but I think that as, as employees, as employee grants, so it's going to, even though they're always going to be probably employees sitting within this option pool, um, as, as people who are senior early hires, I think the the range generally can be obviously as low as you, you know you're comfortable giving. So you know we've seen zero point zero five percentages or, or whatever that might be. And actually, that's a to a one point why we always encourage founders to have um, a high number of shares and do a big share, do a share split early on, so they can make quite small and, and specific grants rather than having a hundred shares and having to grant like one percent at a time. Um, and then I think on the top end, you know, you're probably looking at again it's hard to say but i you know generally we say you know up to like 1.5 percent is a is a pretty serious meaningful equity grant and um, and this is for someone who would be on the roadmap type of hire so say like an early senior developer or you know an early you know product lead or someone who's coming into to run marketing but not at a c level and not at a kind of like there's a gap in a founding team kind of level and then to your point carlos which i think is a really good one that Occasionally, you have, and we've invested in companies like this. And it, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's two founders, and both of them are fantastic on the business side. And one, or, one example know, where we see like a wonderful marketeer, potentially, potentially like that. you know, a a larger than normal option grant, so above that kind of, you know, range which we talked about for a very early employee up to one point five percent. So more in the kind of one point five to five percent, or maybe even higher, is sometimes when you've got you know, two founders in a, in a team that that we're backing that both are fantastic on the commercial side, you know, maybe excellent kind of like on the marketing team um, angle, but they're missing a, a maybe a technical co-founder and, and that seems to be something which is incredibly important for the business. At that point, there might be that the investors who are investing at that time might say, right, we're so aware of this that we're going to request a slightly larger option pool. So rather than 10, maybe 15, maybe 20. And with an eye on the fact that, this person got to be brought in, so maybe five percent of that pool is kind of earmarked for this kind of you know exceptional hire to to come into place. So that's 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 an example on that side. Cool. Well,
0: it, maybe this is also a good transition to talk about vesting because I mean that the the part of what created this mechanism that you could give to somebody uh, a larger chunk when somebody left is vesting and how that protects you. So maybe you just we're not going to get into the. Nitty gritty of vesting, because I think there's plenty of coverage out there. I think you even wrote a blog post about this, Tom. But just to explain the role of vesting in this and the the typical types of language associated with it, like cliff and monthly and that kind of stuff.
1: So, uh, I think just stepping back as well um, on that on that last point, um, one of the key uh, mistakes that we even as lawyers, the founders, make is giving away too much to the company too early. Um, so that that borne in mind, and vesting can uh, can, can help with that because it effectively sort of spreads out how much you get according to how long you're there. So in an options context, what, what vesting means for if you've got a plan, which is what's called exit only, which means you can only excise your option and get your share um, on an exit, such as a sale or a listing of the company. What vesting means there is... It is its own. It's it's relevant to when you're allowed to exercise your option, how much of your option you're allowed to exercise. So Carlos mentioned Cliff. What a market standard vesting provision looks like is that it vests over four years. You don't get anything in the first year. So from the date it was granted. So from today's date until the first anniversary of today's date, you don't get any vesting at all. Then, on the first anniversary, so you've had the option for a year, you get 25%. Your option vests over 25% of the number of shares. So, as I say, if it's an exit only plan, you can't exercise your option, but you've sort of locked in the right to exercise over 25% of the shares if there's this exit. So, if there's a sale, this listing. Then you see either vesting. Um on a monthly basis for the next three years, um, or sometimes you see quarterly, or more rarely you see yearly. So let's say if there's an exit and you've held the option for three years and your option's over a thousand shares. So you've been there for three years, your option is vested as to 75%. That means you can exercise your option on this um, sale or listing over 750 of those shares because that's 75% of your total number of shares under option, which is 1,000. If you've been there for two years, you'd be able to exercise over 500 of the shares. If you've been there for all four years, then you could exercise over the full complement of of 1,000 shares. It's also relevant in exit-only plans to leavers, so if I leave, and we can go into what constitutes a good lever and a bad lever. but if I leave and I'm a good lever, typically I'll get to keep hold of my option to the extent it's vested. So if I leave in the first year and you have this cliff, then my option lapses, I don't get to retain it in respect of anything. If I leave after two years on that example, then I get to keep half my option because it's vested as to 50% of the shares. Now, sometimes I can exercise that option within a certain period post-leaving. Sometimes, depending on what the plan rules say, I can retain that option and I can exercise it only to the extent vested on the exit along with all the other shareholders.
0: And this is the point that you brought up earlier, Ian, that I stopped you on, and that I wanted you to go into more depth here because I think that this—I think what one of the things that I've learned over the years is that there's a lot of stuff in option plans that is philosophical and and or cultural probably is a better word. Mm-hmm. It's like the culture of the company you want to create. You know, for example, a lot of people who join you on your journey don't have money. They're not necessarily there uh, with with you know millions in the bank account. That you know they're part of your journey because they want to help create value, right? Mm-hmm. And and therefore there are ways that you can create mechanisms on departure of an employee where the only way for them to be able to make any value is by to, to to buy in on options that they don't have the money to buy in. So it's kind of like a circular reference. They can't do that. So maybe walk us through what best practices are for yeah, a company that so wants to be inclusive of their employees.
3: Yeah. So when you say buy in, what, what, what we mean by that, of course, is there's an option. We'll have what's called an exercise price And as we said earlier, an option isn't a share, it's a right to buy a share. And your exercise price is the amount you have to pay to exercise, we say your option, and acquire those shares. But if that exercise price is high, and as Carla, she said earlier, if if you've only got a small number of shares and haven't been a share split, it can be quite a high exercise price per share. But the more general point is if you've got a high aggregate exercise price, you've got to find that money and possibly some tax out of your own pocket in order to be able to get hold of those shares. So it's all very well saying that I've got the right to buy these shares for a million pounds and those shares are worth 10 million pounds. That sounds like a good deal. But if you can't raise a million pounds to pay your exercise price, then you can't get hold of those 10 million shares. And yeah, if that was the situation, you might, you might remortgage your house or something. But, but, but most people, and, and, and that, is, that is a huge disincentive to exercising your option. And that's been recognised. So some, and, and certainly um, in the US, um, the, the standard was that you had really sort of translated from, from ISOs, um, incentive stock options, which are their sort of tax favoured options. Y- you had um, basically three months in which to exercise. Now, what we're seeing in the US is companies have longer periods
1: post um, leaving to exercise. And in the UK and Europe, um, if you've got an exit only plan, we sometimes see um, that that option lasts for its entire period of what's usually capped at 10 years. So if you leave after, say, three years, and let's say we've got that four year vesting schedule, um, you keep. 75% of the shares under option, and you don't have to buy them then. Sometimes you can, sometimes you're not allowed to, but you keep that option for the remainder of the sort of overall 10 year period. And then if there's an exit in say year eight, you get to exercise your option alongside everybody else. Now, the counter argument to that is you've effectively had a free ride because you've worked for three years for the company and you've benefited from five years of somebody else's work. Um, so you, I have seen, um, in fact, I think it was index ventures who suggested you might sort of have some mechanism of capping the value. I haven't seen anybody do that in practice, because of course, what you would say as an employee is if I was capped at the value within the first three years, that value may be next to nothing. And it's actually only been in these last couple of years that we've had these enormous funding rounds or somebody's come in with this huge um, exit or we've listed and our shares have gone through the roof. And you say, well, without my work laying the foundations for the first three years, you wouldn't have had this huge exit four or five years down the line. So, as you say, it it is a cultural thing. It it can work both ways. And you need to decide looking down the line what you want to reward in your company. I mean, what what I think is fair is that if you've got a fairly tight definition of good lever, so it's people who've perhaps been made redundant or left, God forbid, due to injury, disability um, or even potentially death um then you allow on an exit only plan you allow them to hold on to those options and exercise and share in the spoils with, with everybody else for yeah. us it's different um they a, a, a u.s employee particularly in silicon valley and the bay area they would see vesting as not only locking in my right to exercise if something happens they would see vesting as i can now exercise in respect to that piece so if I've got the, to the end of my year cliff and my option has vested over 25% of the shares. So on that example of I've got an option over a total of a thousand shares, they would now say, not, a, not only have I sort of locked in my right to acquire 250 shares at the exercise price, I can exercise that right and acquire those if I want to. Now a lot of people don't because of that point about the exercise price um, and all the tax but they would have the right to do that. And some of them do because some people we find just culturally prefer owning shares and being on the share register to having, um, uh, to having an option to buy those shares. And there can be tax reasons as well in the US, yeah. this concept of early exercise to start your long-term capital gains tax um, period. Well,
0: yeah, um, you've mentioned tax a few times and, and it's it's because we're about to go into the section on tax but I wanted to create a a line between, uh, for those that are listening, obviously um, probably can check the show notes, but the way that that we structured this episode is everything that is likely going to be some element of conversation with an employee and and cultural is the first half of of this episode. And the second half is everything has more more to do with legality. Uh, And we can cover tax and we I'm going to cover structures. But the reason why I wanted to, Cover a lot of these points, including the vesting and the and the pricing, because they're a lot. They're emotional. They are cultural. They are how you want to project to your employees how you care about them, how you believe they they represent value to you and your company, and the journey and the vision and the mission. And and each one of these micro decisions mm-hmm. can have an impact and how somebody feels. You know how 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 do they how do they get to retain that value when they leave? What happens to their that value if, if you know, if they die and they transfer that to their loved ones, you know, all those elements that we've covered so far, how much, how much to give individuals, how much to give to employees, how to create a vesting schedule, how to pay on departure, you know, all those elements make up that. And it's very important as a founder to make sure that you get those elements right, not think of them entirely as just numerical, but actually manifestations of the culture don't create a situation where it's in conflict with your culture. And so with that, Tom, I wanted to ask you, Best practices that you would encourage founders to have in talking through some of these commercial points before we get into the tax and structures. Just talking through this with an employee that they're bringing on for the first time.
2: Yeah, no, I think that it's it's when this is done well, I think it's a real benefit to to the companies because it's the, the the kind of guiding principle behind. Um, you want as founders putting putting ourselves in the shoes of founders. To be able to explain to an employee very clearly um, the the potential value of, of what you're offering, um, because if you don't, you miss an opportunity as a, you know an, another kind of like incentive mechanism to potentially get a fantastic employee on board. And I think this is le- becoming less of an issue now that there's more initiatives like you know like what we're talking about here, and more people you know putting blog posts out there and putting content out there and really helping to educate the whole um, ecosystem and now the more sophisticated employees who've maybe been at a startup before they want to know okay what is what is what is my equity um, what is my potential equity package worth and how's it going to work and so I think that one of the things which practically speaking founders can do is they can walk each employee through that they can say okay this is the state of the company at the moment we've just raised financing whatever three months ago from whoever it is. This was the kind of valuation of the company this is therefore it, on paper what the kind of like grant which we're giving you is worth and then one of the things which i've seen some founders do and actually there's a fantastic example of this which is quite well known i think in, in startup circles that carter do in, in the us and they do a really really great way of the, the, the cap table management software do a great way of breaking down a kind of like offer letter and how they explain equity to employees but Basically, what they're trying, what you're trying to do as a founder, is say, okay, this is what the company's worth today, and almost like scenarios of right, you know, if this goes incredibly well, and you know, you're now one of the early employees at the next, you know, Facebook, Uber, Spotify, whatever you want to call it, then your you know, options could be worth this. If you know it goes pretty well, your options could be worth this. If it doesn't go as well, your options could be worth this. And I think whilst you could say the third one. Isn't the best sales tool. I think it builds trust in in what you're actually offering because you know these are very much. There's still you know it's a huge amount of risk involved here, and I think that explaining that in a way that okay, it's it's better than a, uh, an employee just seeing a piece of paper which says you've been granted you know fourteen thousand six hundred and twenty three options in in the company, and they're like, well, what is that worth? Is that worth fourteen thousand pounds? Is it worth? And it might be that it's worth probably worth you know potentially infinitely more than that if there's this outcome um in the the really really positive sense so i think founders who go through that step by step and you know there's various examples i've said online and again we can link to some of this these resources put the company in a really great position to help get that great hire over the line and that's you know that's one of the, the, the this is one of the key tools which is which is um which is in the company's kind of arsenal to to get some of those people over the line. So I think that it's it's breaking down some of those things can be a, a really, really, um, a really, really valuable thing to do.
3: Yeah, communication is key. I completely agree with that. Uh, and not only recruitment, it's retention as well. Um, certainly, we see people pay money to put in option plans and then don't communicate it. As you say, why would you do that? Because you, you're, you're losing the, the the benefit of people understanding and being incentivized by these things. And certainly one thing we've done, I've gone down to companies when, when you were still allowed to. In fact, these days I've done some of them on Zoom when they've had a town hall meeting with um, all their employees. and um, They fired questions at me about what's the term of this option? What are options? How are the different shares? Everything from very basic things, just explaining the tax, which we'll come on to. Um, and it, it's surprising that a lot of people have said, well, it's nice for getting this option thing, but I don't really know what it is. So I'll just put it in a drawer and I've heard some hairdresser at Google did very well out of up there. So this must be a good thing. Um, but they don't really appreciate the value. What One caveat I would say as a lawyer is that um, giving financial advice is something you have to be authorised to do and it can potentially be an offence, actually, if you do give financial advice. So you, so you must make very clear that what you're doing is not financial advice and it's very, very difficult to value early-stage companies because I have seen people give a valuation based on the investor shares rather than based on the ordinary shares and the options are granted over the ordinary shares. So, but so long as you care for that, I absolutely agree with the general point. You, you say as a rough general projection, this is what you could get. And yeah, you'd be diluted by investors. But if you're doing well, we might even give you a sort of top-up option to keep you in the same position.
2: Yeah, and I think just, just to build on that, I think I think the, the town hall idea is a fantastic one. If you, if you can get access to that as a, as a founder, I think that's brilliant because it just allows people to get all of their questions out and, and really understand them. And I think that, again, just to emphasize how important it is to have something in place to try and explain this you know if you don't your competitors will Um, and the big tech companies do they have like a very very structured way which is obviously they've spent loads of money on which is a piece of paper which shows you kind of total compensation as an employee and it's a lot larger figure than their salary and their salary is always already significant so if you're a startup and you're going for that top talent which is exactly the talent you should be going for You need to be in a position where you can put forward something, which is, and it's not disingenuous to put this forward. This is just putting something forward, which is actually making sure that you know you're you're at least giving yourself a a a chance to to get these great hires. And I think it's it's when it's done well, it it, you know it can be really really impactful for the company. Mm. Great. Well, for those
1: lawyers for it as well. Say, look, come down and talk to our employees. Um, you know, as part of, uh, I shouldn't give away the tricks of the trade, but you, you, sh- you, um, you should, you're well within your rights to say to your lawyers that, um, can, can you throw in as well as your quote of drafting the scheme documents? Can you throw in a half an hour zoom or a half an hour, come down to our office and hold a town hall meeting with our employees? Um, and I hesitate to say that people would trust lawyers, but, uh, in that limited and specific way, perhaps they do.
0: Well, excellent. Um, I think that that's a good point to, to end part one of this. So if you're listening, part one, we cover definitions and we covered the commercial terms that are most important to cover with your employees.